Welcome to the Color Timer Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Taylor. This is the podcast where we speak to professionals who work with color. Now, today I'm speaking to Mr. Michael Murdoch. Mike is an associate professor. He's the director of the Munsell Color Science Laboratory and head of the Integrated Science Academy at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, I will do my best to use my 15-minute stand timer, but I can't promise anything because I've got so many questions for Mike. Let's go. Take your seats because the hourglass is about to turn. We are entering the world of the micro podcast. Explore the craft, creativity, and science of professionals who use color to tell stories. Welcome to The Color Timer with Vincent Taylor. Mike, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, you, I, uh, you are definitely the first professor that I've had on the show. Uh, so hopefully those who are just listening to the audio version of this are imagining a cliche professor with, you know, long worry, white hair and things like that. Um, I, but look, I, I, I want to just jump straight in uh, and I better not forget to turn over my color timer. Are you ready? Yep. It's it. like a game show. It's like a game <laughs> show. It's like, yeah. All right. So let's, let's get the show on the road. Um, so first of all, let's just cut to the chase. Tell me about your job. What is your job? Uh, my job is great. I get to uh, work with students and learn new things and play with technology and look at colors. And uh, yeah, it's great. That's, but, but what do you <laughs> what do? What do I really do? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so of course, a big part of it is teaching. Um, we teach color science here. We're, we're one of the few places in the world that actually has a color science degree program. Um, and we can talk more about what that means, I guess. Um, but also research, that's also a big part of what we do here. So, um, you know, using the scientific method to learn new things about human vision or about how we, you know, quantify color or how we describe color appearance or other things, how we apply it to different fields. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, you know, helping yeah. the university run, I'm also a part-time kind of administrator of things to help, uh, help what we do here at RIT, so yeah. That's wild. Uh, can you tell me about the, the stepping stones of, I mean, how did you get to where you are? What, what's your career path? Well, um, I took a rather wandering path to get here, uh, which is maybe not typical and not the recommended path, but, um, and I, I, well, not that there's anything wrong with it, right? There's no recommended path. Maybe that's the better yeah. way to say it. So um, <laughs> I actually started in chemical engineering, um, had right. always been interested in photography, so found my way to Kodak here in Rochester and worked for Kodak starting in 1997, which if your memory is similar to mine, you recognize is close to the end of, of real film research, right? Uh, so I was lucky enough to catch the end of that and work on uh, ectochrome film and motion picture film for a couple of years there. Um, and then I got, you know, it was clear to me that film was on its way out, chemical engineering was on its way out. So I really switched gears into digital imaging and I uh, got a master's degree in computer science to help me do that. And I, I studied part-time here at RIT while I was working for, for Kodak. Um, and basically the whole time I was working at Kodak, I was really interested in color, learned from all the experts at Kodak about color and vision and how imaging oh systems work and how you reproduce color in film and in displays. Um, yeah, so then I was working on OLED displays for a while 
And then, uh, you know, Kodak kept getting smaller and smaller, and I managed to not get laid off, but uh, to quit on my own terms. Um, and I uh, moved to the Netherlands, where I worked for Philips oh. Research for about seven years, uh, really working on displays there at first, color displays, HDR displays, uh, wide color gamut displays, stereo displays, all from the perspective of, you know, visual quality and color quality and those kind of things. So really, um, you know, mathematically modeling the physics of the display and how those are uh, received by the eye and, and modeling the appearance of the displays and trying to improve them, right? So writing mm. patents, well, both at Kodak and at Philips about how to make better systems that are more responsive to people and, and uh, you know, give companies an advantage in the market, supposedly. Wow. So, yeah. And then I ended up getting a PhD while I was in the Netherlands um, in human technology interaction, which is kind of where color or where computer science meets psychology. Uh, the topic of that was, huh. was display design, essentially. So a lot of the work that I did at Philips was able to be included in my dissertation, uh, sort of on human-centric display design. And so, again, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it was all sort of color related. And then that kind of set me up for this job here. Um, color science is really interdisciplinary. So my background in combination of engineering and computer science and human technology interaction, you know, fit in here pretty well. That's not the only combination of skills that work well. Um, we uh, have other people working here with backgrounds in engineering and psychology um, and computer science. So, hmm. yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious to me from, from what you've just told me that, uh, that draw of, of, of color has been consistent. And yeah. I don't know if you can distill this down, but what do you think it is about color that, that keeps you wanting more? <laughs> well, um, you know, it's where the real world meets the brain, you know, and the, the visual sense is so important to everything that we do. And, Color is really hard to pin down, which makes it an interesting challenge. Uh, it's hard to, you know, quantify it in a way that really is kind of true to what it is and kind of universal. It's impossible to really quantify it that's universal for everyone, um, but we try to aim for a, you know, a good average representative sample a lot of the times. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I just find it fascinating. You know, it's, it's interesting yeah, how it sure. works physically. It's interesting how we receive it and we process it. And there's so many aspects of, especially the, you know, the brain side of our visual system that's really not all yeah. that well understood yet, and we're still working on it. That's amazing. Now, now you are um, you're the director of the Munsell Color Science Laboratory. Uh, I was wondering if you could just tell me a bit about that and also maybe touch on uh, who Albert Munsell was. Sure. Yeah, so I have been in this role for less than a year, um, following the footsteps of Mark Fairchild, who is the director here for uh, at least a decade, and before that, Roy Burns. Um, who are both, you know, names that color scientists will recognize as the authors of books that we still use for teaching and stuff. Mark's still here, by the way. He's not, uh, he's on his way to retirement, but he's still here for the next few years, which is great. Um, but yeah, so the Munsell Color Science Laboratory was in, endowed by the Munsell Color Foundation in 1983. Uh, and that basically is the end point of the sort of um, commercial and then foundational legacy of Albert Munsell, who um, was, let's see, he passed away in 1918, I believe. And I don't remember how old he was, but, you know, uh, he, re he reached a reasonable age at that point. Um, 
but he was a color educator. He actually taught other color educators. So he was like a professor of color education at the Massachusetts uh, School of Art and Design in Boston. And he, um, you know, was an artist, but a very technically oriented artist. And he came up with the Munsell color system, which you may be familiar with. I happen very to have so. this, yeah. I see it in my background. Uh, the Munsell Book of Color, right? Oh, <laughs> which, of course, that. is page after page of, um, you know, little color samples arranged in value and chroma, and each page is a different hue. Some of these are, are pulled out because they all come apart and we, we use them for things. But uh, right. this book That's is, awesome. you know, a really nice physical representation of a color order system. It's one that we teach as a good way to, uh, you know, understand the sort of perceptual dimensions of color. It's also the basic structure of the C-Lab color system that, that a lot of people use computationally. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of the main um, things that Munsell did. And so his, his commercial enterprise made tools for art education, including like crayons and paints um, and books and, um, you know, other art, kind of art supplies like that. Um, yeah. And his son ran the business for a while and then really wasn't into it and sort of made this foundation to support art education. And at some point, basically, that foundation was dissolved in order to you know, form our lab, which is pretty cool. So we live on, you know, with that foundation, which continues to you know, support us financially as an endowment, which is pretty neat. Yeah, it's really neat. And it's uh, to state the obvious, but what a, what a fantastic history yeah. to come to have come from that foundation is just amazing. Yep. Um, uh, so you teach, uh, let me get this right, uh, colorimetry, uh, psychophysics, lighting and imaging. And, uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to just pretend I know what all those things are. Uh, but I want to know, uh, cause I'm going to come back to them, but, but the people who are studying that, what are they, what are they driving toward in their career? What, are, what is their end goal or end goals to study that? Yeah. Good questions. Um, so our degree programs here. I mentioned we're one of the few places that actually has the degree program. Um, I should also say it's only graduate degrees, so it's masters and PhDs, uh -huh. which means we get students coming here with bachelor's degree, sometimes already a master's degree in a variety of fields. Uh, most common would be, say, physics or computer science or chemistry. Um, but we do get people from, you know, art history or book conservation uh, or even fine arts sometimes who come in. Um, and those those fields typically need some more uh, basis in you know computing and math and stuff than they might have gotten just in a, through a BFA or MFA program. Um, mm -hmm. But often those individuals have those interests already, and it's it's not a big thing. Um, but basically, um, people come in with these varied backgrounds. Everybody needs to know a bit of everything. So that's the hard part is getting everyone kind of on the same page and we have these first year cohorts where they take classes together and they actually learn from each other and things which is which is fun because some people have some computer skills some people have some more you know scientific experimental skills and they yeah. you know, work together on stuff which is fun wow. um, but what are they working toward um, many of our students go to work for sort of high-tech companies uh, especially in the you know consumer electronics or even the entertainment industries uh, a lot in silicon valley the big names that make phones and TVs and things that you know, um, also you know makers of streaming or old-fashioned cinema productions. Uh, those are all common employers of our graduates. 
but also paint companies or lighting companies or others that uh, that make you know color or color materials in different ways yeah I, I I realize that I've got a 15 minute sand timer and my next question is going to suck because I'm going to try and get you to <laughs> contain it somehow. But uh, okay, so I, I and I, the reason I keep looking off to the side is because I've got to pronounce the word right because it doesn't come out naturally. But uh, I, I mentioned colorimetry, psychophysics, lighting and imaging. Yep. Is there a way that you can tell me basically what they are? <laughs> sure. So I listed those four <laughs> words in my uh, profile or something, right? Um, and those yeah. are essentially four classes that I teach or have taught. Uh, so colorimetry, the word re really means measuring color. And one of our you know, first year fundamental courses is basically that. Like, how do you quantify the physics of color, whether that's you know, something printed on a page or painted or coming from a display or a projector or a light source? Um, mm -hmm. you know, quantifying the physical radiance or reflectance or whatever of those materials in a way that is you know, physiologically valid and perceptually relevant. Um, so the Munsell color system, the C-Lab system, the CIE XYZ tristimulus values and chromaticity diagrams, um, lighting, color rendition metrics, those kind of details are all included in colorimetry. Um, psychophysics is a cool word that people are often fascinated by. In fact, we used to have a lab with a, a label, like a sign on the little sign on the on the wall in our hallway and somebody kept peeling the psychophysics sign off and stealing it. So it got replaced a couple times and eventually we just changed it to perception. <laughs> so psychophysics <laughs> sounds a bit uh, weird and funny to people, but basically again, word root psycho is kind of like the brain, the mind, the psychology and the physics is like the real world. And it's really yeah. where uh, the, um, the stimulus, the physical stimulus is interpreted as sensation with the, with the sensory perceptual systems of the of the human so for us it's primarily a vis visual thing so the physical color stimulus reaching our visual system and our and our perception of that so a psycho psychophysical scale of something like brightness is a very fundamental one and you probably are aware that like you know if you double the luminance of a light source or display it doesn't actually double the brightness right it's something mm -hmm. less than doubling every time um, and so that perceptual nonlinearity is a psychophysical relationship between the stimulus of luminance and the perception of brightness, for example. Gotcha. So, yeah. So, the, and there's, there's a lot of other examples for that, but it's, you know, basically trying. Uh, so in that course, in the course that we touch on that topic, we talk a lot about the experimental methods required to uncover those psychophysical relationships. So you can't really probe the brains of people, at least a lot of people in your studies. Um, so you do visual experiments, right? You put two colors on the screen and you ask people which one is greener, or you put two samples on there and you ask them to adjust one to match in brightness or in color or something else. And sort of from repeated, you know, carefully varied stimulus presentations like that uh, mm -hmm. in kind of organized and measured conditions, you can infer relationships and test hypotheses and things. So it's really like applying the scientific method to this perceptual phenomena that we're always interested in in general mm. relationships. How much, as you were saying that about, you know, putting colors up side by side, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, whenever I go to the optometrist and they do different tests for your eyes, how much uh, would somebody who was in that field in optometry or something like that, 
come into your world or, or is that a very different kind of avenue? Uh, it's definitely related. So human vision is a big part of what we do. We focus mostly on the um, you know color aspects of it and not so much the you know refractory issues and things that you fix with glasses. But so color vision and color vision deficiencies are a big topic. So like, um, you know, you, you may know of normal color vision and, and deficient or colorblind color vision, but there's also like anomalous color vision where people, mm -hmm. you know, they have the normal three cones and the three channels in their vision system. But for some reason they see uh, colors a little differently or they have trouble distinguishing greens and reds, but they're not totally colorblind. Um, so some optometrists will measure those kind of differences uh, in even vision. That, that's where it probably overlaps the most. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my sand time has run out, but I'm, I'm going to break my own rule and be a little bit greedy and just squeeze in a couple more questions. Are you okay with that? Sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it always, it's, you know, it, it gets toward the end. And I'm going, ah, oh, darn it. Yeah, it goes really um, fast. I, I, it, it's, uh, it's amazing, you know, but, it, but it's good as well because it kind of keeps us going and keeps us, keeps us going through it. Now, when, when I was putting together uh, some questions for you, uh, you sent me a link of some of the things you've been working on. Uh, and one of those things was uh, uh, augmented reality. And mm. I was wondering if you could just touch on that and explain to me how color works in that world. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so augmented reality is kind of a big and, you know, high potential, say, field. You know, up and up. It's, it's the kind of thing that's been around since 60s, but still hasn't really, like, been realized in the way that we want it to. So that, you know, the recent good examples of that are, like, the Microsoft HoloLens, you know, head-mounted displays where... Um, the main difference between those and virtual reality is that virtual reality tends to like block out the real world and just give you the virtual stimuli. Mm -hmm. Whereas augmented reality, the glasses are still transparent. You can still see the real world, but you're adding something to it. Oh, yes, so yes, of course. Display. Yeah. And so the HoloLens does a really good job of um, physical placement. So you can actually put a virtual object kind of in real world coordinates in a way that it stays Fixed, so you can look at it from different perspectives um, through this virtual system. Um, but what that means is because the display is transparent, you always have the real world sort of coming through it and distorting its color. Um, so again, physically you can measure that and you can measure the transparency and you can calculate what's reaching your eye, but because brains are smart, people are able to figure out what's going on, right? And they ignore the background to some extent, right? And, and understand the color as a transparent color and sort of in a way that, you know, normal colorimetry doesn't really predict. So for me, that's been a really interesting sort of color science puzzle to try to figure out yeah. how color appearance works in these transparent displays. And um, short answer is we don't fully know, but we've made some progress. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be so naughty. I'm going to squeeze two more in. Uh, so you're, <laughs> anyone who's listening, you said it would be 15 minutes, but, um, uh, now you serve on the board of the inter-society, uh, color council. Uh, what do they do? Yeah. So actually my term expired, so I, I don't currently serve, but I, I, I enjoyed my time there and I'm still involved with the organization. Uh, in fact, so what it is, is a professional society basically, uh, but a really broad one, like. I'm a member of several other societies that are color related, but this one is really broad and brings together people interested in color from sort of art, industry, science, and education, which are all mm -hmm. fields I'm quite interested in. Um, and of course, it's fascinating when you get all those different kinds of perspectives together to talk about a cool topic like color. 
Uh, and so one thing that they do is organize conferences. And I will just quickly plug that there's one here at RIT in two weeks uh, hosted by the ICC, which is great because the last one was in 2018, you know, pre-pandemic and everything. Um, the last in-person. Are they, are they, a, are they a, reg a regular, uh, now that the pandemic's over, yeah. is that going to be a regular kind of thing that you guys are going to do? Yeah, I think the, the, the general plan is to have a, an in-person conference, you know, every two years or so. And mm -hmm. the location of those will change, but... We're excited to host one here at RIT this year. Um, mm -hmm. We were talking about the history of our lab. I mentioned that it started in 1983, which also means that it's our 40th anniversary. So that's one you know, nice coincidence about hosting that conference here. It also means we can open our lab and have like a you know, 40th anniversary celebration and alumni yeah, party wonderful. and other things here that week. So. I, I, look, I'm not, I'm not going to hold you up, uh, but I do have my, uh, my icebreaker question, which uh, normally I do at the beginning, but uh, I've saved it till the end. Uh, and, and this is kind of a, uh, almost a butterfly effect thing. Is, do you think there is a color? Can you do without a color in the universe? You know, would, would, would things tumble apart if you removed a color? Do you know what I mean? I know it's a bit science fiction-y, but... Uh... <laughs> Depends on what you mean by a color. Mm. Um, well, I don't. I, I guess I don't mean primary. I guess you know maybe there's some unusual color. Like if that was just taken out of the universe, would things tumble? So if you thought of the color spectrum, right, and the the Roy G. Biff colors, um, I think you could probably do without yellow. And I say that because you know you already do without yellow, right? You're looking at a display right now, and that display emits no yellow. Right. So with with a combination of red and green, you can make yellow all day long. And that's, you know, because perceptually we cannot distinguish between a yellow wavelength and a combination of red and green wavelengths. Right. They're metamers. They're they, they're perceptually identical. Um, so you yeah. know, maybe yellow is redundant. You, you, you made my my kind of uh, dumb science fiction question sound sound better. <laughs> um, Mike. Thank you so, so very much. I, I really appreciate you taking time out to chat to me. No problem. It's been fun. Time Cheers, goes mate. fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Uh, I'm impressed that we only went just a little bit over time because, uh, man, it's, it's such a huge conversation to have and a lot of stuff to squeeze in, but that was really great. Uh, thank you to my executive producer, uh, MixingLight.com. Uh, if you are listening to this or watching this on the Mixing Light website, you already know what they do. If you don't, check them out. They can help you with all things color. Uh, thank you also to my friend of the show, Filmlight, and to my producer, Kayla. Uh, and also, thank you. Thank you for listening. I, I really appreciate it. I'm getting such great feedback, some lovely comments, some good questions. Uh, keep them coming because it, it, it really does make a difference. Like, subscribe, do all that kind of stuff. And uh, keep coloring outside the lines. See you on the next one. The Color Timer, a micro-podcast experience.